Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. And today, here's a guy who's uh, doing good things for people and the planet, uh, Dr. Alan McEwen from uh, University of California, Riverside. And uh, he's been a long time... Uh, I don't know. Well, how would you describe yourself with respect scientist. to scientist? <laughs> All right, a long-time scientist. So, how would you describe yourself with respect to the uh, biotechnology world? Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm a public scientist. I'm paid by taxpayers, so I use my skills as to the extent that I have them uh, to try to serve uh, the general general public. And if that involves using uh, whatever techniques, biotechnology or otherwise, to produce uh, more food or more nutritious food or safer food, uh, then I, I will do that. And at the same time, and I'm an, I'm an educator, so I, I try to teach people uh, why I do the things that I do. Okay, so so all your money comes under the table from uh, Big Ag, right? <laughs> My, uh, well, <laughs> I, I have a personal policy that I do not take research funds from uh, any of the companies. Uh, so... Uh, simply because I know that if I uh, if I do take money from any of these big companies, then uh, you know, there's a, a certain question about my independence and where my values may lie. So um, yeah. it was uh, a personal decision that I made a number of years ago that uh, if I'm going to take funding for research, it has to be from public sources. And, that, and I, I, I appreciate that, and I always thought that was a great idea. And I got in a pickle when I took, uh, uh, well, a donation from a company to do some outreach work, some very simple outreach work, and that turned into, you know, you saw that explode. So taking it for research, you know, but luckily, you know, well, we can go into my whole story another time, but, well, where are we anyway? Well, unfortunately, we're still there, right? I mean, I... No, no, where are we now? Like, you and I... Yeah, you and I, we are still in this similar situation. No, no, I, I mean, physically to tonight. Physically, we're in Denver. All right, We're in Denver right, at a conference together. A we're having a, a beer. We've already had dinner together, and uh, we've uh, we've shared intimacies. Yeah, we're at the... But, you know, not, not that, not that, that, not that intimate. 
<laughs> Those aren't two pillows. No. Right. No, it's but we're uh, sharing yeah, battle it's, stories from yeah. the trenches. Yes. And it, we're in the pick and snout, right? Or what's, what is it? Uh, we're in downtown Denver, just behind the train station. All right. But in a restaurant or something. In in a pub. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a pub that makes food. Or a food that, yeah. They have poutine. It's not that bad. They do have poutine here. Okay. Yeah. Good. It's not real poutine, but it's not a bad facsimile. So when we go, let's talk about the science thing. We get poutine is good. but So we go back to the year 2000, and you published the book, Pandora's Picnic Basket. Uh, the Risks and Benefits of Biotechnology, something like that. Yeah. I read it a long time ago. Oh, good, good. And so how does, thank you, you just delivered something for us. How did, when you wrote that originally, what was the impetus to write that book? Um, well, that's, you know, we're going back into history here, but, you know, when, uh, when, when I was an academic scientist and we were developing the initial underlying technologies behind genetic engineering for crop improvement, uh, I would attend scientific conferences and during the breaks I'd get together with some of my colleagues from you know, around the world and we'd have coffee or a beer or whatever and people would say, oh, did you see that article in the paper about you know, some ridiculous situation where um, you know, somebody was complaining about biotechnology and genetic engineering and going to destroy the planet and we'd all laugh about it and somebody in that group would say, you know, one of us should get together and you know, just write a book and tell the public what this science really is. And we'd all say, yeah, that's a really good idea. But nobody had the time. Uh, shortly after that, I, I had the opportunity to go on a, a sabbatical to uh, Australia, Brisbane, Australia, a wonderful place. But the project that I was planning to do on my sabbatical fell through, and I was in Brisbane with my family at the time, and I thought, well, okay, well, with my project now defunct, how am I going to spend the next several months? And I thought, okay, well, maybe I should be the person to compile these stories and explain to the people what the technology actually is, what the opportunities really are, what the true risks are, and most importantly, how genetic engineering compares to traditional or conventional plant breeding so people will have a better idea of whether they really want to oppose the technology or possibly support it. Uh, and that's a really good point. You know, there, that a lot of the discussion in the book, even though now we're looking at it, what, 18 years old, um, probably almost 20 since you wrote it, how many of the arguments against the technology and the risks um, against that we formally recognize, how many of those remain the same? Well, you know, it's a good point. Every so often, you know, people will ask me, well, when are you going to come out with a second edition and, and update the book? Uh, and I think, okay, well, that's not a bad idea. And I, I look through the book and I, I see the arguments against the technology really haven't changed. The people who don't like the technology don't do so for scientific reasons. They do so for political reasons. They're trying to convince people to buy into an agenda, a political agenda, that um, perhaps people wouldn't necessarily support if, they, if the arguments were truly honest. And if they're using scientific arguments, um, I think people would see that this is actually a pretty good technology. I mean, now, 18 years on, as I had predicted in Pandora back when I wrote it in 1999 in Brisbane, Australia, 
um, I, I predicted that there really wouldn't be any different hazards associated with the technology that we haven't seen with conventional breeding technology, and that is borne out. Uh, I wrote the book shortly after the first genetically engineered crops were actually grown by farmers. Very limited acreage, very limited number of crops, but nothing really has changed. The arguments remain the same. People still say, you know, we don't like the idea of big companies uh, controlling the food supply. That's still a, a valid argument. It's not limited to biotechnology or genetic engineering, but some people adhere to that. Uh, other people will say, well, this is unnatural because, you know, with genetic engineering and transgenics, we're crossing the species barrier and Mother Nature doesn't really want us to do that. Well, that was as wrong in 1999 as it is now. Uh, only now we have many more examples of where Mother Nature does actually transfer genes from one species to another. It's simply not a question in the scientific community anymore, and it shouldn't be a question or an anxiety-causing issue in the general public. So I, I have to look at it and say, well, I wouldn't really change all that much. In the, from the first edition, except I could add some new things, uh, some changes in, uh, in the technology. We have uh, gene editing now that we didn't in those days, and that would be really interesting uh, to add, but I'm not sure that that is sufficient justification to write a, a new edition and hope, <laughs> hope uh, purchasers would buy another book that says basically the same thing as the first edition said. But, but that's what is really cool about this in a lot of ways, is that here you had technology that, uh, that the critics were appropriate about it back then. And we sat down and said, like when Monsanto said, well, there will never be a problem with Roundup Ready. I remember sitting with people saying, are they high or what? I mean, this, this is going to be a major issue that, just like anything else, you'll see evolution around the, tech, around the crop protection strategy. And the same with insects and everything else. And it's all borne out that way. And I guess that's, that's always been the surprise, is that the academic scientists kind of get it right. Um, for benefits and risks, and, and and yet people still don't necessarily take us seriously. Now, you've been around it a long time. How do we change our messaging, and how do we become more relevant in the eyes of the public with respect to this topic? I wish I knew a, a simple answer to that. Uh, I think part of the problem is that, that we as academic scientists um, will not use the same tactics and tricks as the people who are opposed to the technology are using. Uh, as academic scientists responsible to the public, paid by the public, uh, we feel responsibility to be truthful, honest, and the other side doesn't, frankly. Um, I, I recognize that certainly there are hazards with biotechnology. I recognize that they're, they're really no different from uh, the hazards associated with conventional technology, uh, that there are many really useful things that we can do with this technology, but there are limits. And that's actually a pretty boring message when you think of it. So we, we academic scientists don't have the same impact as people who will come out with spectacular headlines about how GMOs are going to cause tumor formation in rats, for example. Completely bogus, but people are far more attentive to those headlines than they are to the academic scientists say, whoa, 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 that doesn't actually happen. Right. And then we're also not really good at saying, you know, look at this paper that came out by Seralini back in 2012 making this claim, and here we are in 2018 
2015, which means we are six years after the publication, which means we're seven years after that research was conducted, and they have not reproduced or meaningfully expanded that, that work, nor has anybody else. And if somebody really realized that a um, technology that was relevant to what, you know, 70, 80% of the grocery store food, food items was causing this problem, it would have continued to raise eyebrows. Yet no one has really come out blazing against that. And is that our job as academics to kind of be the watchdogs of the literature? And if it is, why don't more of us do it in a meaningful way? One of, one of the uh, evolutions in the uh, risk assessment community and the regulatory community and the safety community is that there's always been a, a very high scientific component of risk assessment. That is, we scientists would look at a particular product and we would ask questions about how safe is this? And we would devise different tests and assays and experiments to, to come up with some quantification of, of a, a new product and say how safe it is relative to current products on the market. And we would also have um, a community of scientists who are involved in risk management. They would be the people who would have expertise to say, okay, these are the identified risks. Uh, are these risks so onerous that we really can't have this product on the market at all because they are so hazardous? Or do they have some modest risks that, that we could allow this thing on the market, but uh, also some apply some management so that we can minimize those risks while taking advantage of whatever benefits there are? And that is uh, partly a, a scientific endeavor and partly a, a policy endeavor. But what we're lacking historically is the risk communication. And those are the people who have expertise at explaining to the wider public just what are the risks and what are the benefits so people can then say, okay, these uh, scientific and, and management facts are provided by these experts. Now I can decide for myself as an individual consumer whether I wish to or I'm willing to accept the risks in order to gain the benefits. We've never really had the, the risk communication expertise in our community. We don't have it in academia because as an academic, our job is, is uh, for research, which could be into the safety of the products. Our job is also education of the students in their colleges. But it's not communication with, for the general public. As well, the government, it isn't their job to explain it to the people. And the industry, of course, they're trying to sell the product. So they don't have the credibility right. with the general public when they say, look, this stuff is entirely safe and it has all these great benefits. You should buy it and use it. People simply don't buy that. So for the people who have credibility, they tend to be either in universities or in government, but neither of those pools of people will take that responsibility. It's not our job. Right, and then that's something I fought with forever is, you know, it's not my job. It's not my job. What, you know, and, and you have all these folks who are coming up with innovations to serve the poorest people on the planet innovations to help American farmers, 
innovations to uh, help the environment. And I see it every stinking day. Yet they don't feel that, they feel like, well, I've done my job. I created the innovation. I created the technology. If you fools don't choose to adopt it, that's on you. And what they fail to realize is that there are people whose job, it is full-time job to stand in the way of technology and to oppose technology. And that's where we, as scientists, really fall short because our full-time job is educating students, getting grants, serving farmers in land-grant institutions, doing what we do. Right. And in my case, you know, taking care of faculty and all the other stuff I do. So where do you possibly find the time to engage the public as faculty? Uh, but, but maybe this is where we have strength in numbers, whereas NGOs, the people who are fighting against us, it's maybe, what, a dozen people at the most? Yeah. But that's their full-time job. And so how would it work if every every farmer and every scientist, every grad student and postdoc were to decide to in effectively gauge this conversation? Like, how would it change things? Well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure because the skills that are required to be a good scientist are different from the skills that are required to convey information to the public that is both technically accurate and accessible or understandable to the public. So if you have people, and and they certainly exist, uh, who can convey that information, it's fortuitous. We don't teach our students to communicate with the public. We teach our students to communicate with other scientists. Right. So we use a lot of technical terminology uh, that's immediately picked up by their communicants, their fellow scientists. They understand it, they appreciate it, but the general public doesn't. And we're not trained to teach the general public. So if we do have that skill, it's kind of incidental and fortuitous. And so are you are you actively teaching people this stuff, or is UC Riverside doing this? Not formally, but informally, certainly. Um, I mean, a lot of our graduate students and postdoctoral fellows, research scientists, are very interested in this. I yeah. mean, they, they're conscientious, uh, they want to serve the public, they want to communicate with the public, and we do it informally. Um, I, I was thrown into this, and uh, part of the reason I wrote Pandora's Picnic Basket is that I seem to have a knack for connecting with the public, um, and and I do that at, uh, at the expense of losing some credibility with my scientific colleagues. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, uh, isn't, that, isn't that kind of sad, though? It is. is that, sure. that people will say to me, you know, Fulton, you're a really good researcher. You're a pretty good department chair. Why do you waste your time talking to people? And you know, why you know you yeah. spend all this time with this stupid podcast that you know only six thousand people a week listen to, which is more than picked up any of their papers. Absolutely and, but right. But this is this is the sure. frustrating part for me is that I, I feel that this is like a great conduit. And I, I travel the country. I get invited all the time to talk to students about and postdocs about their branding and how they can use science communication to build something that they can't build on papers and grants alone. And everybody who comes to our department for a job has great grants and great publications. And so how do you get on the top of that pile? And I always say it's about having an outreach component and demonstrated connection with the public. Right. So. 
This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Alan McEwen, UC Riverside. Um, we'll be back with a little bit more about this topic right after this break. After this beer break. So we'll take a, yeah, we'll take a little break. <laughs> Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke, and I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's No with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its express purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're here listening to a biotechnology podcast right now, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could benefit a lot of people, especially when we're talking about biotechnology in food, the dreaded GMO. This is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and I wanted to learn it pretty well. So I traveled like all over the place, Hawaii to Uganda. I interviewed a Schwaka experts, including this pretty awesome guy you might have heard of named Kevin Volta. I'm making videos with all these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. Every week, you'll find a new video featuring some exciting expert or topic to do with genetically engineered food. And the videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science. So I would really encourage you to share them, especially with people you know who need to take a look at this scary topic of GMO a little more pragmatically. Also, if you want to get in on a surprisingly constructive conversation about this topic and maybe even contribute to changing a few minds, follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on the conversations there. It also really helps us if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. And I mean, let's face it, we all want to be in the know, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast after all, which I think I'll let you get back to about now. Thanks a lot. So we're back on the second half of the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Alan McEwen from the University of California, Riverside. We're also joined by uh, Stephanie. Stephanie. You go by Steph or Stephanie? Either is fine. Either is fine. Okay. So we'll, so he'll call you Steph. I'll call you Stephanie. Just to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> Right. Steph so, is what I call my daughter. Is it? Is is her name Stephanie or what? Okay. He's, he's not. And she yet. likes to be called Steph. Okay. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah. And so we're here, you know, talking about the issues about food and farming and other issues that are in, in contemporary agriculture. Steph, so you're here in Denver. I am in Denver. You are in Denver. Denver's kind of a, a groovy place in lots of ways. And, um, so when you think about things like, you know, farming. Uh, you say you're very opinionated about something. About, and, like, what are you opinionated about? <laughs> White male privilege. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure the microphone. That is, would that is related to agriculture. Is it? <laughs> well, well, a lot of dudes are agri, but but agriculture does select for maleness. But also, you know, there's quite a few women farmers who are really awesome. And Absolutely. Who are really kicking it up. Yep. So. I've also been to the stock show. Yeah. Which I feel like is related to agriculture. All right. So, so what, what do you, um, you know, when you talk about issues in farming, you know, out here in Boulder, there's huge uh, infighting about agricultural space and land that's used in agriculture. You know, any of those issues are familiar with what's happening out there? No, no, no. Yeah, but that's, so when you go to the grocery store, do you have any particular way in which you shop? For food, like do you particularly buy you know local or any of that stuff, or you know what what are your tendencies? So I only purchase well 
to the extent I can, I only purchase organic food. Okay. So you only purchase organic. And so what is the advantage that you feel you're getting from organic? Well, so my understanding is that the, to be labeled organic, you can't use certain types of pesticides. And so, and there's the, what they call the dirty dozen, which are foods with soft exteriors, like say a blueberry. And you're not going to peel it, you're just going to get a hole or an apple. And so you want to make sure that those foods are not, you don't use pesticides around those foods because it seeps in. Versus a banana, a banana, if it were used pesticides used around a banana, you're going to peel it anyway, so you're, it's probably not as bad. No, I get that. And a lot of people see the Dirty yep. Dozen. Um, I'm sure, you know, Dr. Pierre has a few thoughts about the Dirty Dozen, so do I. But so, and, and so do you know who does that? Who, who publishes that? No. And so most of my knowledge about food comes from a woman named Robin O'Brien, who wrote TED Talk mm-hmm. many years ago now. And I follow her on Facebook, and her, her research mostly stems from allergens and yes. allergies. But I find a lot of her commentary about cleaning up our food systems very interesting. So I follow her, I read some of the articles that she shares, the perceptions that she has about what should be in our food and what shouldn't be in our food, the labeling of food, which I think is really interesting, and also foreign food policy, where you get into that certain additives are illegal in other countries because they have a, uh, like a, we're gonna test it before we make it mass market versus here, we're like, we'll let it be mass market until someone proves it's bad. We should talk about that, but but, you, but I totally appreciate that you are here talking to us. Yeah. you're talking to the right people. It's really because I know I know Robin O'Brien. I know her well. I've talked, spoken with her dozens of times. And uh, you know, Robin, you know, I appreciate what she does. You know, she's got a child who had some allergy problems, and she certainly is interested in the ways in which food may affect that. And uh, um, but where do we start? I mean, where's a good place to start? Well, I, I think it's, it's great to, to remind Steph, Stephanie that uh, she's expressing an opinion that's very common. It's, ab- right? it's, it's, kind of it's not at all unusual uh, to have somebody express their concerns about food and agriculture the way you have. Right? You have the same opinion as probably the majority of consumers in America today. I'd say about right. Yeah. And so it's cool to hear to, to, to be able to talk to you about this and, and understand more about where we're coming from because part of what we do in the podcast is how do we teach people to communicate with people who share those ideas and and really at the end of the day you know, we're we're really on the same page like what do you find most important to you about food and farming what are the things that you worry about when you sit down to eat something? Well, I know it's it and how it's going to affect me. Because if you look at like healthcare, right? So if we, <laughs> if our, I feel like the number one driver of healthcare issues is usually diet, right? I mean, in a lot of ways. And I think it's hard to test cause and effect when it comes to long-term issues, right? Like even to the day, you know, if we really fully understand the effects of say drinking a diet and so on, right? But then you look at the list of things and you're like, probably not good, right? Like probably, probably not good. And so are, are we, how are we able to test the cause and effect of something um, like, well, I'm eating this now and in 30 years I'm going to end up with cancer, or I've been eating this every week for 30 years and now I have cancer, how do we prove that, that, that causation? And I think that in some ways people want hard evidence, but I think at the end of the day, it's not something that's. It's, there's a little bit of intuition. I think that goes into some of it, right? And, and that's and that's kind of what we as scientists have to have to fight back against. It's really funny because how do we deal with intuition and our gut feelings? 
and how because where do those gut feelings come from? Yeah. And if I told you what you know what I felt was really important, like to me, like my own health is really important. Um, I, I mean, I'm you know an aging athlete. I you know try really hard to eat monitor what I eat. And, I don't worry as much about what I drink. Should we drink more than? Um, you know, this right here is probably the most hazardous thing I will consume all day. You know, yeah, I know. You know, it's so funny. Like we worry about parts per billion of something in our in, in what we might eat, but then we drink parts per hundred of, of a proven carcinogen. Right? But then, um, but I'm really worried about the environment. Like super worried about the environment. Super worried about um, the developing. We feed more people, and really worry about it. And, and well, food waste is huge, and American consumers who make bad decisions about food. And so, you know, that's where I'm coming from. And then I, but then with that as a backdrop, I don't worry about a lot of the same things that you might be worried about. Like I never buy organic. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I do occasionally, and if it's my neighbor or the organic farmer who's local who's selling it, I buy it because I want to support them. But it's not because it, the food's any different. It's that I can buy something that was produced by a person down the street, right? Which I really like. I really value sure. having them make money in my, in my town. Um, so, but, the, but that's kind of the, the way that this is framed. And, and, and the reason it's really important to talk to people who um, may have uh, really what are the majority opinions. Do you worry about the uh, about genetic engineering? really interesting I so sometimes I watch MTV and they have an ad they do a lot of anti-smoking ads one of the ads they talked about was how crack companies have genetically engineered tobacco to make it more addicting to up the nicotine Whoa, really and I thought that's a really interesting that's statistic. not true though at all well, that's <laughs> that is interesting ad, that's what the yeah. ad says yeah sure yeah um, and I think that like to the extent that GMOs can solve problems, I think that's good. I think are we modifying them to not solve problems? Are we do we not fully understand what we're messing with on some level, right? What we're ingesting. Like I, I read Omnivore's Law many years ago. It talked about corn, the impact of corn. We have this surplus of corn. We're subsidizing corn. Now we're feeding corn to trout, carnivorous fish. Like never eating and eat the trout. How does that impact our biology? And what what really is the impact of that? And I think that's the question. We don't fully, I feel like I did, at least the time I wrote those early, which was a while ago, I fully understand the impact of that. Right, and now we're eating all this corn, and it's on our apples, and we're eating corn on top of it, and then it's being fed to our beef, right, and, and then we're eating the beef, and now we've got the carbon content, like, does that affect our metabolism, how we process food? Like, those are just questions I think that, at the time, he didn't, what didn't seem to be really answered, but at the end of the day, I'm thinking, well, a surplus of anything to that degree isn't good, right? Like, See, we, we picked the perfect person. Yeah, right. You should be a guest every week. Yeah. Because, because, no, but here's the reason why. Is that because as scientists, we could probably tell you a lot about all these topics that would probably make you either feel a little bit better or maybe make you want to, uh, you know, investigate it further, which is, but I got a feeling you might. And but, I mean, I read, the time I'm not reading about my wet little privilege, I might be reading about food. <laughs> but, well, the, the thing that I, I do all day, every day, is read about uh, the science and technology behind food and the way food is produced and the way that food, and, and in my state, in Florida, we don't have GMOs really. We don't have um, a lot of technology. It's still very much old school farming. And what we're trying to mitigate is 
how do we fertilize with less? How do we grow with less pesticide? How do we grow with less impact? How do we have um, less? How do we treat labor fairly? These are the things that we worry about where I'm at. But all of these major food system system issues are part of what we have to wrestle with in the podcast every week because we always come up with innovations that people have uh, to maybe target a problem. Like, so how would you feel about a genetic engineering solution that gave vitamin A to help people who are going blind in another country, like in uh, Africa or something, like in Uganda. Maybe they were people who eat banana as a primary starch source, and you could give it the gene from carrots to make the orange color to help them preserve their sight. Would that be something that you would think is a good use of technology? But, but not, not quite sure. I mean, I just think that, like, there's always a reaction, right? So yeah, we can turn it orange, but then, like, is there is there an effect from that aside from vitamin A? Yeah, well, people lose, don't lose their vision and they'll die when they're kids. Well, I mean, but like, is there like, and, and maybe that's the thing. Maybe they're not worried about cancer because they're dying at 22 anyway. So, but but or, I think or whatever, you know may, what I mean? If like, I can articulate what I think you might be going to is, how do you know they're not going to get cancer in 30 years? Right, but then, the, but if they're not going to live to 30, if their life expectancy is sure. 18 yeah. anyway, then they're not worried about that anyway. Anyway, and then yeah. and then what what's the point? I just I, and that's where I get hesitant about. I feel like my understanding of biological ecosystems is are fairly delicate, right? And you start to mess with one piece, and then you start to affect the whole piece. And you know, it, it, to what extent are we messing with one piece of something that we don't fully comprehend the ramifications of that piece, right? And then the honeybees extinct or whatever, you know. Whatever I, I guess the thing that I that I always go back to is maybe it's the default that would help us all. Maybe if we retreat to a little bit, is, is that the stress that we impose on the system or on the earth is us, sure, sure. and that the humans are the problem with biodiversity. You know, if you look at biodiversity in a city, sure, it's probably. all Homo sapiens, right? And maybe some rats and some things, cockroaches, pigeons, pigeons. And if you really want to worry, if you're really worried about biodiversity, then you know, rent your apartment out to a panda. Well, sublet to a trust me, if I could, I would. Yeah, just sublet, to a, <laughs> sublet to a panda, or you know, you know what I'm coming, where I'm coming from. So, yeah. No, as humans, we're posing such a stress on the planet, and maybe the way we need to do this is to use our best technologies to manage that stress. Yeah, and I think technology can solve all the problems. I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I just think, like, I mean, and it's been a while since I've taken biology, right? Like, it's been a, it's been a hot minute. Um, but, like, you walk into the grocery store, and it's incredibly biodiverse. So you've got this, like, really small, like, the Whole Foods has, like, everything under the sun you could possibly want for the most part. So it's incredibly biologically diverse, right? So we have, like, these little pockets, but I think the disconnect comes is they're not understanding. Like, okay, I can go to Whole Foods and get a banana that was grown in Guatemala, right? You're around. I can get an avocado. You're around. So I don't appreciate the fact that, like, see, there are seasons and that that fruits and vegetables only grow during certain times of the year because we have airplanes and, you know, refrigerated cargo shippers and I can get you know, farm-raised trout or wild trout, and then for a while it was like farm-raised trout is bad or salmon is bad, and you have to get the wild salmon. And now it's like, wait a minute, the wild salmon—they're eating all the plastic that's in the ocean. Now you're gonna <laughs> plastic bits in your salmon. Now we're gonna go with the farm-caught salmon, eat the farm-caught salmon. Right. Like, I don't know. Yeah, you're back into a fish corner. Right, right. Yeah, like, right. okay, okay, vegan. We're going vegan. Like, it's fine. <laughs> like, nothing that eats anything else. Like, great. Right. 
So you like, I feel like, like it, there's this, and I think that's part of the struggles. There's just been disconnect in our country between like what it takes to get resources, having them all readily available to us, right? So the question isn't, oh, do I get to eat strawberries in the month of February? The question is, is oh, is it four ninety nine or five ninety nine, or three ninety nine, or is it on sale? And is it organic or is it not organic or just does it just not look good because it's quote unquote out of season? But I can still have one. And so I think that that's part of the question too. I think that what you really frame there really is a question of how privileged we are and how lucky we are to have those kinds of access to food. And you know, to me, it's a very personal thing because I see the farmers in our state really struggling with being able to continue to produce in the presence of foreign competition, sure. where they can't compete against Mexico anymore or South America for blueberry, strawberry seasonal foods. It's really tough. California, um, with their droughts and with the water problems they've had. Um, and so how do we as a society on the precipice that has plenty of access really wrestle with the idea that we live on a planet that's being depleted in resources and we live in a place where many people have will go to bed hungry tonight or without water tonight. And to me that hits me super hard. Um, how, do, how do we reconcile that as an affluent nation with withholding technologies from others because we might find them uncomfortable or uh, not um, or, or we maybe put this idea of long-term effects into the equation. Like, what do we do? What should we do? Well, well, I think there's. I feel like there's two. I'm hearing two questions in there. One is, is the idea. So there's. I, I read a theory that the world, as human beings have known it in the relatively modern era, you know, past cavemen, there have been two major economic shifts. One was from farming to manufacturing, and one was from manufacturing to technology. And so, obviously, now we're at technology, so the farmers are now two stages behind. At the same time, we can't have a country where we've foregone all farming, right? And can't be 100% like dependent on other countries for, for food, right? We can't live in that. Well, it's the last thing we make. It's the last thing we manufacture. Right. Well, I mean, I don't know if I, I say right. I don't know if that's right. But, oh, but yeah, it is. But like, I mean, because they're too, they're the least profitable. I'm a scientist. Yeah, I mean, they're like, they're like, it's the least profitable thing, right? And like now, most of our farm workers are migrant workers. Like, it's basically work for illegal immigrants, right? I mean, yeah, I mean that's right. my understanding, right? So well, then Trump threatens to deport everybody, and then nobody shows up to work, and then all the crops die. That's very true in some places. And so, I mean, I think there's this idea of what are we incentivizing? Are we going to subsidize corn forever, or are we going to subsidize other things? Are we going to figure out the way to make growing locally grown vegetables more profitable? Are we going to succumb to the idea of maybe for now we import it, if one day we ever need it, we know we know how to grow it? I mean, like, we don't necessarily give up the idea that we know how to do it. And I think that, I mean, and then, there, and then I think a separate question is food distribution, right? Like, we've got whole low-income communities with no grocery store and 12 McDonald's and then we've got and then we've got you know Whole Foods and King Supers and I think King Supers sells more, more organic vegetables than the Whole Foods I'm honest with you and they or you know and, and I have the access like if I wanted to price shop my blueberries I could so you know and I think that the food distribution is an interesting concept I actually work with a fund that funds and provides lending to only in low-income communities and part of what they do is fund grocery stores moving into low-income communities so people can have access to vegetables and then we're still going to charge them you know four dollars for an apple which will keep them hungry or full for 12 minutes. I bet it's better than a Slim Jim in a Mountain Dew. Right I mean but, no, if, but, but, but do me a favor and plug that a little bit. Now what's that can you tell me more about what that is and where do we find it online? 
Oh, the fund? Yeah. Okay, so it's called the Low Income Investment Fund, and I work them in the concept with them in the concept of schools and education, but they will they're mission based and they will lend to anybody to any entity. I mean, there's creditworthiness factors, but operating in low income areas. So whether it's a charter school, whether it is a grocery store or you know, a food distribution center, you know, they look at providing lending to probably not traditionally creditworthy entities to low income areas. Is that strictly a Denver thing? No, and the woman I worked with is actually out of San Francisco, so it might be more of a California thing. But they're definitely do work across the country and they're mission based, so that's what they do. And and it's for them it's a lot about issue spotting, what the communities need and how can we make it more accessible to them. You, this entity would be able to walk into a bank of America and give them traditional. Sure. And that's a lot of what my university and, and what Ellen's university do. A lot of it is about family, families and about food access and about uh, community development. A lot of that is there and a lot of it happens around um, these ideas of food deserts and places where you can't find a fresh apple right. or you can't, you, have, you don't have access to lettuce. And it sounds ridiculous to most people, but there are places on, uh, like we're in Denver, downtown Denver, I bet there's places within a mile where we are that don't have where people are living that haven't had that access and and so it's great that those things exist I think um, where we are in this spectrum is Alan and I have always been Alan and I, throughout our careers have been proponents of thinking about all the ways across the spectrum of bring all the tools to the table and whether it's um, what you know whether it's organic techniques and cover crops and rotation whatever whether it's genetic engineering whether it's nanoparticles, whether it's whatever, how do we get every single technology on the table? And that's what that's what we were talking about here tonight. And that's why it was so cool to hear your perspective as somebody who's, you know, a, a, what do you call someone from Denver? A Denverian? A Denverite? <laughs> a Denverite? A Denverian? But, you know, your your thoughts are well taken. And I totally appreciate you having the courage to come in and you know, have a seat with a couple of weirdos you never met. <laughs> or sitting here with a giant microphone on a table in the middle of, what's the name of this place? It's called The Pig and the Sprout. The Pig and the Sprout. We called it The Moon Oink. You're close. But, but, but you know, Steph, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your opinions with us because it's... Uh, I think it's refreshing. We as academics, you know, stuck in the ivory tower, we don't often get uh, the the opinion of a you know a regular person who shops, who's concerned about food, who's concerned about agriculture, and it helps us formulate how we move forward to satisfy your concerns. Well, or our messaging so that we're reaching you. Yeah. Because that's the other problem is that we've got really good technologies that we really believe in that we are sitting on top of. Like to me, like the idea of genetic engineering is not an issue. To me, it's a way to uh, feed people who are hungry, better food for here, less environmental impact, hands down. Like to me, it makes it, it's something that we must include and should marry with organic. That's the way I've always been talking about it. And so it's good to hear people like you yeah. who have ideas around food and farming and how it should work. We really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks yeah. to meet you guys. Yeah, very nice to meet you. And we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Steph. So, Alan, that worked out really well. Fantastic. What a, how articulate. And how fun to come talk to somebody, just like pull someone off the end of the bar who, she said, I'm very opinionated. And I said, that's great. Excellent.
Yeah, you know, just, it, just exactly what we need. Yeah, you know, it was perfect because the nice part about everything she said was is that these are the feelings that she has yeah. in her heart. Yeah, it's these honest. These are the things that, that really concern her. Yeah. And it's things that, as that probably 10 years ago, you and I would have said to her, you know, what's wrong with you? You, well, you, you, you know, know, you science denier, what's wrong well, with what, you? What I got from it was, uh, you know, Steph mentioned that, you know, these are the things that she had seen or heard in advertising, right? And and I think that's what we need to focus on because it's the it's the advertising uh, that we hear on the radio, see on TV, read on the internet that, uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, we're fighting against these people who are poisoning the truth. Right. And a good example. So Robin O'Brien, as she mentioned, yep. you know, Robin, I, you know, on, on one hand, I adore Robin because she comes from a place where she's concerned about her family's health and concerned about her community's sure, health. Course. You know, and, 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 and I like that. The thing I don't like is the gravitation towards supporting ideas that are not necessarily consistent with science. Right. And that's where I, as a scientist, to kind of put my foot down and say, you know, I'm not quite sure that this is the person that you should follow. And, you know, ideally, and what I've always said about someone like Robin is, in the food babe and everybody else is, here's somebody who has a following, who has a very good um, persuasive way in communicating with people. And if I, we only had her on the side of science, communicating a message that was pro-science, pro-pharma, that was really seeking to identify what is the truth about our food system, not just an idealized facet about one part of it, how powerful she could be. Yes, indeed. And, you know, I, I still to this day, that's why I never really get too upset about those folks. Um, I, I really hope that someday they do kind of see the light that technology is something that we're all on the same page with and something that we can really rally around and make some good positive change. So, there we go. So, what else do we forget, Alan? Um, I, I think uh, it would be good to touch on the, uh, some of the lightning rods. The people adhere to, they, they right. hear that it's, it's unnatural. I mean, you know, what Steph mentioned, that how do we know that these things aren't going to cause cancer in 30 years? That's a fear. Yes. Uh, and it is a, a visceral reaction. When, when somebody tells you this, somebody who has a following um, and has a, a podcast, uh, internet, or television spot saying, you know, maybe this genetically engineered stuff is okay. But how do we know it isn't going to cause cancer in 30 years? And people respond to that, right? Well, you know, we have good science that tells us, or at least gives us a, a good scientific basis for saying that that's an unfounded fear, right? Somebody is, is pushing your buttons to give you an emotional response to something because they don't have the facts to back up their agenda. Well, that's very true, and and the idea that when you know we talk about uh, long-term unknowns, it's classic fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Right? Absolutely, it's fud. And the idea of 
using fear to motivate people. And what's really, I've always, and I guess I haven't talked about this on the podcast in a long time, is I don't think, and I'm a weirdo, I don't know if you know this, um, I've never, I don't make decisions based on fear. But one, one thing that, that we scientists are fighting against, and it's against our nature, is that it's not only fear, but any emotional state yes. uncouples rational thinking. That's right. So you could be elated. I mean, we've, we've seen people who, are, who think you know, genetic engineering will solve all of our problems, and all we have to do is let our genetic engineers take over. We don't have to worry anymore. Well, that's just as wrong as right. the people who say, this stuff is really fearful and that's we right. should ban it. That's right. Um, so it's whenever, whenever somebody makes a pitch that evokes an emotional response, a red flag goes up in me. And then I'm expected to hear, okay, what is this person trying to sell me? <laughs> and then I know that they don't have any real scientific basis to what they're claiming. Otherwise, they present the, the scientific data, and I would make a rational decision as to whether this product is worthwhile, my purchase or not. Yeah, that's very good. So what are some of the other things that we still have to wrestle with? Uh, the natural uh, fallacy that, you know, Mother Nature doesn't cross the species barrier. Absolutely wrong. Mother Nature does it every day. Uh, I've done it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Not proud yeah. of and, it. And, and, and it's, Not, it's uh, again, one of those uh, uh, visceral, you know, emotional things. One of these, I mean, nature is benign. Uh, you know? Harvey Weinstein crossed kingdoms. <laughs> you know, he... And, uh, you know, I'm... <laughs> You know, a little love of the ficus in the corner, you know. We all have our indiscretions. Absolutely. But Mother Nature has, uh, not, not to be funny anymore, uh, Mother Nature has had many examples of where um, genes have jumped from species sure. to species or kingdom to kingdom. And, you know, the, the example I typically use with an audience is a sweet potato, right? Sweet potato has not been bred by humans for very long, but sweet potato, when you analyze the genome, is known now to have bacterial genes in it that were placed there by Agrobacterium tumefaciens thousands of years ago without any human interference whatsoever. And this is an example of a bacteria going into a plant. I mean, there's... That's you know, right. It's on uh, episode... It, it's, a, it's a kingdom to kingdom transfer, not just species to species. Entirely natural. Yes. Mother Nature controlled that. And nobody has any concerns about eating sweet potatoes. That's right. It used to be the sour potato. Sour potato? I think. Before it got these bacterial it genes, got the that sweet, made it sweet. Sweet, the sweetness <laughs> uh, of bacteria. But that was, but, but that was an episode. Um, I don't know, ninety something in the podcast series where we talked with um, uh, someone from uh, uh, CIP about sweet potato. Anyway, the idea is, is that yes, there have been many examples that we can document of kingdom to kingdom transfer, sure. and even the plant itself is an example of a uh, evolutionary relic of a bacterial uh, invasion of a eukaryotic cell. It's kind of well, cool. You know, uh, and, and the most common uh, genetically engineered product in commerce is actually insulin, which is made with a human gene transferred into microbes. That's right. So a human piece of DNA transferred into a microbe, which then reads that DNA and makes insulin just as it is in our human pancreas. 
Now, microbes have no need for insulin. They don't have blood. They don't have to regulate blood sugar. So what are they doing producing insulin? Well, you know, here's a, it's not a natural situation. We do it through genetic engineering at the hands of human yes. manipulators. But people have very little concern about injecting, diabetics have very little concern about injecting genetically engineered insulin made by microbes. And maybe that's a really good way to wrap up, is that you, you really have framed an important argument here, is that when you talk about food and farming and threats, that, you know, we talk about this in my communications work all the time, that appeals towards the part of the reptile brain that senses threats. But when you talk about medicine, we talk about medicine in this idea of hope and therapy. And so genetic engineering as food is seen as a threat, where genetic engineering as medicine is seen as really a therapy and a positive thing. And I think that's one thing that maybe as we go forward, that as we begin to frame food and genetic improvement of food as something that is more of a human right, that is um, an improvement over what we have in the industrialized world compared to what we have, uh, a, a, uh, a benefit. And we really start to weigh this in terms of the benefits that we see. They take it out of the realm of something scary and weird and placing it more into the food of medicine. And I think maybe that's the place we start to see to change. Maybe. You know, the Europeans have always uh, distinguished red biotechnology or medical biotechnology as opposed to green biotechnology in agriculture. Because we see, you know, with medicine, uh, diabetics take insulin because they see an instant benefit. They're willing to take whatever risks may be associated with the genetic engineering. Uh, and food is, of course, something completely different. We voluntarily eat, whether it's a kale or a cheeseburger or whatever. Whatever, but that line is blurred when you think about the golden rice that, that we alluded to earlier. Is golden rice that produces uh, the beta carotene that re releases uh, vitamin A in people with vitamin A deficiency, is that rice a food or is it a medicine? It's treating a medical disorder, but they're doing it through the food. So is that a green biotechnology for medical purpose or is it? Uh, a green biotechnology is a food. Right. But that, but that is a blurred line in a gray area that I love to kick ass in. Because to me, that is the place where we need to create the change. Absolutely. That whether it's, uh, whether it's a zinc, iron, vitamin A, those are the first places this technology should have been used and the first places it should have been deployed. Yeah. And where we should have every single company that has the deep pockets deploying technology to help people before they start helping themselves. Now, you know, it's retrospective. Um, sure. Certainly, we can think a lot of things companies could have done better. Well, it's not necessarily retrospective. I mean, I remember back in the day, you don't remember this because you're a young man, uh, yes. but as an old guy, I remember when we, when we first were considering commercialization of a, a GMO or genetically engineered crop, uh, which turned out to be uh, the first whole food was flavor savers, as, as you may remember. Many of us in the community were saying, no, 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 let's get the cotton out there first, because it's not a food product. And people, especially farmers, would see what the benefits of this technology were, and regular consumers who would not necessarily eat cotton would look at the farmers who were growing the BT cotton at this position and, and say, yeah, that's actually a pretty good use of the technology. But unfortunately, it happened to be Flavor Saver, a food product that uh, the humans eat, and all of the fears came out. And again, as I say, 
when you introduce fear or any strong emotion, rationality gets uncoupled. That's right, and and that's and that's really the, the way that we have to think about this going forward. Because how do we take you know really thoughtful, honest folks like Steph, you know, who I, again I adore her for sitting and talking to us. But how do we help them understand that technology can be something that appeals to all the values that are at her core and the things that really make me happy too? And things that make you happy, things that really satisfy Robin O'Brien, you know, all the folks who, you know, we think of as really averse to technology, how do we help them understand that technology can be a good thing? And I think that's our challenges for, you know, Pandora's picnic basket number two, is, you know, maybe this is really a question of how do we present a product that teaches people that, you know, we're all on the same damn page. Well, one of the issues is that we have to get it away from the, the corporate connection. Uh, currently, all of the best-known genetically engineered pro pro products are produced and owned by big multinational corporations. And, uh, you know, there's a fair number of people who are opposed to the technology, not because of what it can do, but because it, it further um, produces profits for big companies and is that the right thing to do for something as basic as food and agriculture for us all? So let's get more small companies, academic institutions, public institutions like USDA producing genetically engineered crops for public benefit yes. with sustainable traits, uh, water use efficiency. I mean, we all know that water is a diminishing resource, increasingly expensive everywhere. If we can grow the same amount of food, whether it's corn or soy or strawberries on a given acre with less water, that would be something something of interest to everybody, even regardless of how we do it, whether it's genetic engineering or conventional traditional breeding. So let's get more of those products, beneficial, sustainable products out there and let people, consumers, see what the opportunities afforded by modern technologies can be. And that's a beautiful way to end that one. So, so uh, you know, Dr. McEwen, so if people wanted to follow you on the Twitters or something like that, where would they find you? McEwen at gmail.com. Spell that then. M-C-H-U-G-H-E-N. At gmail, G-M-A-I-L.com. Well, yeah, we know that part. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm not as active as you are. But the nice thing is that, that, that Dr. McEwen has been in this for a long, long time. From the beginning. And he's really been pushing the uh, benefits of agrobiotechnology agri uh, since the beginning from an academic position. And you know, it's for the public to, good. For the public good, and you know, and, and I'm with you on that. You know, how, maybe one last question is: How do folks like you and me, who really are in this for the public good? I mean, either of us could have worked for companies in a heartbeat, doubled our salaries at least. At, at least, how do we get people to trust us more? I don't want people to trust me. I want people to trust science. And I will provide them the data, scientific data, that they can evaluate for themselves and say, yes, this makes sense to me. Now, McEwen provided this data set and these arguments that make sense to me. I don't like people who say, yeah, I trust you implicitly. That 
makes me nervous. Right, we I have to earn it. I want to earn it, and, then and we I have want to, to earn it with data. And that's and, and I, I think that's great, and I think that's the way we're going to do it, and, and I'm glad to hear you say that. It's, you know, it's a tough road ahead, but, you know, we got, we're, we're just out here telling the truth, and that's how it rolls, right? Right. So, Dr. Alan McEwen, thank you so much for being on the Talking Biotech podcast, and clink glasses by the microphone. Cheers, and uh, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech, and if you have any thoughts or questions or people, suggestions, uh, tell a friend and uh, send us an email, and we'll see what we can do. Uh, I'm Kevin Folta. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.